You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. If you've got your Bibles there or you've got a smartphone or whatever you use to sort of get into God's Word, I'd love you to turn to 1 Kings 19. I want to share from probably one of my favorite stories this morning. And it's really interesting that Michael was sharing a little bit about perspective because I want to speak about perspective this morning. I want to speak about the, the truth that um, in our circumstances, perspective changes nothing, but it can also change everything. Uh, when you were younger, you may have encountered a, a famous Australian novel um, called Picnic and Hanging Rock. I don't know if you read this, you, you probably had to do it in primary school as a, an Australian literary uh, book. And uh, I had to do it in a roundabout, I was probably grade five, and I think we had to read some of the book, and we had to, we had to watch the movie, 1975 movie by Peter Weir about Picnic and Hanging Rock, to, to sort of give you a short of what the story's about. In Victoria, regional Victoria, there's this sort of weird landscape that just suddenly shoots up out of the middle of, the, of all these plains, and it's this strange sort of granite rock shape. Just that it comes up, all these rocks all over the place in weird sort of positions, balancing each other. And it's, it's incredibly strange. There's a long history of being seen as something a little bit spiritual, something a little bit spooky. And what happens in the story is that it's based in 1900 and a girls' school goes there for a picnic. And in, uh, in the course of this picnic, three of the students and a teacher disappear on the rock, never to be seen again. Later on, some of the rescuers who go to search for them also get lost, never to be seen again. And this book and this movie actually end with this great mystery. What happened to these students? And it's given just enough sort of historic detail to make a 10-year-old student feel that it's real. And so it was about this time that my grandparents thought it would be a great idea to take myself and my cousin Matthew to Picnic Rock for a picnic, Hanging Rock for a picnic. And so we head off there on a, on a beautiful Saturday and my grandparents are down the bottom on one of the wooden picnic tables and they're sort of getting around and said, boys, why don't you just go up the rock and climb on the rocks and go up the top and see what you can see and just have fun. Absolutely, that'd be awesome. So as you start heading up, um, there's sort of a few ropes you follow and a few paths, but because there's sort of these granite boulders all over the place, there's not really a path per se. Along the way, they have a few little information sort of sections, you know, one about the picnic and hanging rock, uh, another one about a bush ranger who died on top of picnic hanging rock and the ghost still inhabits the rock. And so as you head up there as a 10-year-old boy, you're pretty excited about the possibility of what you're going to discover with you, when you're with your friends. So we get up and we're hanging around, we're kind of playing at the top of picnic rock, climbing over as many boulders as we can in between them. I don't know if you remember, not that long ago, there was actually a climber who got stuck between two boulders, picnic rock, for a number of hours, actually I think it was almost two days, they're trying to get him out. So we're climbing up all over this and we're, we're sort of running off on each other and um, suddenly I can't find my cousin. And he's a little older than me, he's about two years older than me and I can't find him, I'm kind of up the top and I've noticed that there was a lot of tourists at the top of this rock a little while ago and now there's no one. And I'm sort of wandering around the top of Hanging Rock just wondering what's, what's happened. And at the start, you feel, okay, it's cool, I'll just go back where I came from. But hanging rock is not that easy because there's no paths. And so you just start walking around, you get further and further lost. And I start to look around and I start to panic because I remember that there's a ghost here. <laughs> and then I remember that not only is there a ghost, but a but hundred years ago, three schoolgirls got lost up here and died, most likely murdered by the ghost. 
And, and I start to panic. And I'm only 10, so I'm not tall, and I can't see much around me except these big rocks. And I'm, I'm running all over the place. I'm, I'm getting really scared. I'm nervous. It's been days, at least in my thinking. So I pick up this like red ochre rock, and I start to etch my last will and testament out onto a large piece of granite. I leave my soccer ball to my brother. My Reebok pumps to my best friend, Lee. Then I have an idea, I have a brilliant idea. What if I climb to the highest possible point of the rock and maybe, just maybe, I can then see where the picnic ground is, right? So I proceed to sort of climb and climb, find the highest point I possibly can and I look around and it's this incredible view and suddenly everything sort of falls into place to where I am. I look and I, I can see definitely where the picnic ground isn't because it's just wilderness. That's worrying. Oh, hang on. There's my nana and grandpa. I can, I can see them down the bottom there. Oh, and I can see some tourists walking over this side and they're coming up. And I can, I, suddenly my heart's filled with hope in the midst of my despair because my perspective has changed. I can see where I am. I can see what's happening and I can, I can see my way out. I'm no longer stuck, surrounded by all the rocks around me that just cloud my view. So I proceed to climb down. I get down the bottom and I've got a story to tell my nana and pa. Oh, man, you never believe what happened. Oh, it's good you're back. We're just about ready for lunch. I'm like, I was gone for hours. Like, it's like 10 minutes. <laughs> no one cared. No one thought I was lost. But for me, it was a significant moment, most traumatic, and I've had much counselling about that. Um, <laughs> but the reality is that in life, it is filled with ups and downs, right? It is filled with moments when we feel like we're in the valley of despair. And it's filled with moments when, when the situation, the circumstance of our life so, seems so, so overwhelming that we just possibly can't see a way out. And what we need to get is a new perspective. We need to get God's perspective. It, it's amazing when you see two people facing a similar situation, how they can approach it and, and deal with it in such a different way. Two people diagnosed with cancer. One at the point of despair and giving up and one still full of hope about life in the future. Well, when there's issues in relationships, it's so often this perspective that, that causes the issues. You know, perspective is, at one moment it, it changes nothing, but it also changes everything about our circumstances. And I think our challenge in life is, is that we need to allow not our circumstances to shape our perspective of God, but, but we, we've got to allow God to shape our perspective of our circumstances. That's the great Christian challenge throughout the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows of life. Is God shaping my understanding of what is occurring around me? Or are these circumstances overwhelming so much that they're shaping my understanding of God? Elijah was a prophet in Israel during the reign of King Ahab. The words that the writers of Kings used to describe Ahab is that he did more evil in the eyes of God than all the kings before him. He was a bad dude. He was ruining the nation as far as its, its allegiance to God, to Yahweh. And, and Elijah comes on the scene in the midst of this and we, we're introduced to him with some strange words that he's no one really important, but he's given a huge task to proclaim drought on the kingdom. And he goes to Ahab and he says, there will be no rain in Israel for three years because of the evil you've done. And then he scurries, like as quick as he can, out into the desert in the wilderness. And he kind of hangs out there for the next three years until the stream that he's by dries up. And then he ends up with this widow who, and God continues works miracles. Her, her, her flower lasts 
for the remainder of the drought. Three years later, God again turns up to Elijah and says, Elijah, you need to go back to Ahab. Present yourself to the king and tell him that I will end this drought. And the most incredible scene of victory occurs. You probably remember this. You probably heard this story well, where, where he goes to the king and he tells the king, bring all of the prophets and priests of Baal and the pagan religions to Mount Carmel, and we will see who is the God in Israel. And so this amazing event ensures where he challenges 850 prophets and priests of the pagan religions to this challenge. He says, if your God can bring down fire, then Israel will worship your God. But if my God brings down fire, then, then we will see who is the true God of Israel. And you know the story. And, and the prophets of Baal dance around all ridiculous. They cut themselves. They do it for hours and hours on end. And Elijah stands on the sideline and ridicules them like any good Aussie would at a sporting event, right? Like, has he God gone to the toilet, he says? Is he on holidays? He thinks it's hilarious. And then he goes in and he builds this altar and he covers it with, with, with 12 jugs of water. Impossible to light on fire. And with a simple prayer, God would just show them who is God of Israel. Up it goes. The scene that follows isn't that nice. 850 prophets are killed. Um, But all of Israel witnesses who is God. It is is the pinnacle moment of Elijah's life. He is the one who God has called to be his messenger to Israel. He is the one whose God is on his side. God's got my back. What could possibly overcome me? I mean, it's such a great scene that Ahab jumps in his chariot and he races off because this downpour of rain comes like a flood and Elijah is given superhuman strength and outruns the chariot. It makes for a great story. But the next scene is actually really devastating. And this is where we pick up the story in in chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how that Elijah had killed all the prophets with the sword. And so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. His life is threatened. Imagine what he's been through. He's just seen God bring down fire. He's just experienced superhuman strength to outrun a chariot. He's just experienced the most glorious moment of the God of Israel overcoming his enemies. And one queen threatens his life. What would you do? You'd stand there and laugh at the silliness of it. How can you possibly say that you're going to... God will probably give me superhuman strength to withstand the sword. But he doesn't. Elijah flees. Elijah runs away. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. He runs away. A day's journey into the desert, not for prayer, not for fasting, not to seek God's will for what is next. He, he runs away because he's had enough. It's over, he says. I don't want this anymore. He is so overcome by despair that he can't even remember what God has done just 24 hours earlier. My life is not worth living. And he lays down ready for his life to end. It's amazing how short our memory is of what God has done in our life when we're faced with a moment of 
crisis, with a moment of despair. And in many ways, Elijah here, sitting under this bush, is a picture of the valley of despair. An absolute picture of hopelessness. He's no longer on the mountain of Carmel with God's victory. He's now in the valley of despair, recognizing that his life's not worth living. And at any moment, it'll be taken from him. There's nothing else worth it. I'm done. There's nothing worth fighting or striving for, he's saying. I think sometimes we can experience this. I think many of us can associate with Elijah in that moment of despair when we feel like, I just want to sit down and give up. I want to run away into the desert, find a bush and sit there and just not do anything because my situation is so hopeless. My situation is so beyond redeeming. My situation is so, so beyond coming back from the place it is, it's not even worth fighting again. It seems so far from the mountain experiences of life. It's the valley and it's the desert. It's where we're dry and empty and it's got the smell of death. It's a place of despair. It's interesting. Despair prevents us from seeing who God is in the midst of our situation. It clouds our memory to how God has acted in the past. If I was to define despair in terms of the reality of God, Despair is that when we have forgotten who God is. Our circumstances have, have so outgrown the greatness of God in our perception that we can't see anything beyond what we're suffering right now. We're seeing all of life through the lens of our suffering and our crisis and the struggles and it's clouding everything else. In a very real way, we are stuck. We're like a 10-year-old boy on the top of hanging rock and all you can see around him is giant granite boulders. There is no way out. That is a horrible place to be. It is a horrible place to be. And, and most of us will probably find ourselves there at some point. And, and it's a place that we face in reality. There's a couple of things that are really good news about this place of despair. The first one is this, that God is present in the midst of the valley of despair. You'd know really well the beautiful Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In this valley of despair, we've we got to remember that God is still present. God is not just present on Mount Carmel where the great victory was had, but God is present in the midst of the circumstances and He promises to journey and walk with us. Even though Elijah has given up, even though Elijah is done, God is still there. And the amazing thing about this situation is this. That God is there in His love and mercy. He takes the initiative to move towards Elijah. He takes the initiative to change Elijah's circumstance. Have a, have a look at this. Verse 7 and 8 of 1 Kings 19. The angel of the Lord then came down. And he touched Elijah and he said, Get up and eat. For the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he was strengthened. And he traveled 40 more days and 40 more nights until he reached Horeb the mountain of God. You see, in the midst of the valley, the good news for those who have faith is that God sustains us in the midst of the valley. 
but he sustains us out of the valley as well. He's with us and present there, but he works to get us out into a better place. It's this beautiful thing, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says to his disciples, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a beautiful thought, isn't it? In the midst of our valley of despair, God is present. But, but it doesn't end there, right? Because Elijah's, Elijah's moment moves from despair to encounter. From despair at the, 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 the horror of his life and his circumstance to an encounter with the Most High, to the reality of who God is. You see, God invites us from a place of despair, not just to joy, but a place of despair to encounter. Because in the encounter with the living God, that our despair and our, our frustration and our sadness and our sorrow is transformed into something else. It's the encounter that gives us perspective to see what is really going on through the lens of God. We find that in, in 1 Corinthians 19, 9. Let me read this to you. It says this. He found this mountain of God and he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him and it says, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they'll kill me too. The Lord said to him, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then we read of this incredible moment where he passes by. There's this amazing wind. It says, but God wasn't in the wind. And then there's this incredible earthquake. It says, but God was not in the earthquake. And there's this incredible fire. It says, but God wasn't in the fire. And it's followed by this soft, still voice. Elijah, what are you doing here? I find it really interesting God's response to Elijah here. Elijah is there on the mountain. Elijah has run away in despair from the God who just saved his life, from the God who has just given a great victory, and he runs away. And God's question to him is not, what do you think you're doing? Why have you got such little faith? Why are you so worried about this Jezebel lady? Don't you know that I am the great God who will overcome? But his question is one of, of gentleness. Elijah, what are you doing here? Why are you here in this mountain? God doesn't respond by trying to, to reason with Elijah out of his despair. Sometimes we do that. Oh, it's not that big a deal. We try and brush it under the carpet. We try and just make your circumstances seem small. If, if I can talk to you enough and make your circumstances feel really small and insignificant, then it doesn't matter. But they do matter because it's a real situation that I'm going through. What I need is something greater than my situation. What I need is something greater than my circumstances that can help me gain a new perspective. You see, and God doesn't shut Elijah down in this moment of his lack of faith and despair. He doesn't ask him to forget it. He asks him for his reason for being there and then not even answering his self-pitied reason. God turns up and shows him who he is. Because it's in the encounter with God that our perspective shifts. Changing perspective has to begin there. If it doesn't begin there, then, then we'll never truly get the perspective God wants us to have. When we're in a place of despair in life circumstances, we need the encounter of the living God to recognize the reality of all realities. And there's two things, I think, that happen in this encounter that Elijah has with God on this mountain. The first is this, that he overcomes his vision of a pacified God. And by pacified God, I mean this. I mean, I mean a God that we muzzle. A God that we tame. 
an image of God that we shrink down to be safe and secure and comfortable, and an image of God that, that will never rock our boat too much, an image of God where He doesn't really intervene that often in our life, an image of God that says He's not really powerful enough to do anything of significance in my life except for make me warm and fuzzy on Sunday morning. We kind of muzzle God down. And when we've muzzled God down, we've pacified who God is, and the circumstances of our life easily become far greater than Him. In this, we so often highlight the soft, still, comforting voice. But we forget that God also brought the wind that caused him to tremble, the, 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 the earthquake that caused him to fear, the fire that caused him, him to just be terrified for his life. God turns up in a way that shakes the very core of who he is and his circumstances. Uh, some old theological writers call it the numinous of God. It's this idea of encountering the divine being, the one who is totally other from ourselves, an experience of absolute fear and trembling and reverent awe at his power and his might. When was the last time you felt that before God? Not, not, not fear of, oh, I'm dead, I'm doomed. Not the same fear we fear when we're lost on the top of hanging rock. It's, it's this awesome fear like when we see a lightning storm when we're standing on the peak looking over the ocean. It's what C.S. Lewis was trying to get at when he, when he created Aslan as the image of Christ in his, in his Narnia stories. I don't know if you recall, but there's this scene where Lucy's about to meet Aslan. She's talking to Mrs. Beaver. And she finds out that Aslan is not just a king like we know of a king, but, but he's a lion. And Lucy, understandably, is a little bit nervous. Is it quite safe to meet a lion? I shall feel rather nervous. And Mrs. Beaver says there this. Oh, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking... They're either braver than most or they're just silly. And Lucy responds, then is he safe? And Mrs. Beaver said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. And he is the king, I tell you. There is no one who encounters the glory of God in Scripture who does not fall down before him, recognizing that they are nothing before him. Recognizing their life is so small in comparison to the greatness of God. Recognizing that, that they have no reason to really be there except for His grace and His goodness. But they all experience the goodness of God. So often despair comes because we've boxed God into a gentle grandfatherly figure who, who smiles at all and allows the world to just go on as it pleases. But our God is far more than that. Isaiah paints this incredible picture. Isaiah 40. When he says this, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, he spreads them out like a tent. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. To whom will you compare me, he declares, or who is my equal? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these things? Because of his great power and his mighty strength, none of it is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you complain, Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding. No one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. 
increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired. And young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord renew their strength. You see, our God is far, far greater than the circumstances you face right now. Our God is far more powerful than whatever is coming against you in your life. Our God is able to transform and to change. Our God is able to redeem and to renew. Our God is able. Our God is big enough. How easily we forget it. But God doesn't leave it with the trembling experience for Elijah. Because he speaks to him in this soft, still, tender voice. Because our God comes to us with power and with might, but also with tenderness, like a loving father. And Elijah is reminded in this moment of who he meets, with who he's encountering. This God, this, this mighty God, this all-powerful God, who, who through the stars... In a space, who with a word created everything we see around us, who brings the princes of the world to naught, and all of history is an unraveling of his plan. This God is also the God who comes near and is present in the time of our sorrow and our sadness, who is with us in our despair. This awesome God meets with his children with the tenderness of a loving father. Elijah isn't judged here, he's not condemned here, he's not told to wake up to himself and get over it. He's comforted. But his comfort doesn't come from wallowing in his self-pity. His comfort comes from seeing who God is, so his perspective shifts and everything changes. You see, when we forget the fear of God, the awesome power of God, the might of God, the danger of God, then we can't understand the tenderness of God. An encounter with God will always restore the balance of these in our mind and heart. I don't know where you're at at the moment. I don't know what you are experiencing in your life. For you, it might be that you need an encounter with the awesomeness of God. The brute force of this this creator, this king, this untamed one. Or, Or it might be for you that you need the tenderness of God. Let me tell you, God is pleased to have you encounter him. He's desiring and wanting for you to encounter him, to give you a new perspective on your circumstances. Elijah knew who God was, but he kind of forgot. And so often it's true for us. We have allowed our circumstances to become greater than the God who actually rules over all. When we come to the end of the story, nothing's actually changed. Ahab is still king. All of the priests and the prophets of God have been killed under his reign. Jezebel still wants Elijah's head. His life is still in jeopardy. He's still hiding in a cave. But everything has changed because God is actually in control. The situation is far different to what Elijah had thought. The facts that he saw and he read through his despair were very different when read through the eyes of God. You see, we need a new perspective so often in life. We need God to come in and we need to encounter Him. It's not about positive thinking. It's not about drumming up excitement about life within us. It's it's about encountering the living God and recognizing that every single thing in life is different when we know who He is. We know His truth. It's not ignorance. It's not rejecting reality. But it's about faith in the midst of the crisis saying, my God is able. We're going to sing a song in a moment 
famous old hymn called It's Well With My Soul. I love it that you chose that because it tells the story or it's written by this man named Horatio Spafford. In the 1900s, he experienced a whole bunch of tragedy in his life all in a row. His oldest son was killed by scarlet fever. In the great Chicago fire, he lost his whole business. He was a lawyer and he was financially ruined. And so in order to sort of make a new start for himself, he decides to head to Europe. But he's got to take care of some business before he goes. In those days, the crossing was fairly treacherous. You're on a boat for a number of weeks. So he piles his family onto his boat, his three daughters and his wife. And he says, I'll come and meet you soon. And on their way over, their boat actually comes across a storm and sinks. All of his daughters die in this incident. Only his wife survives. While Horatio jumps on the boat not long after, after receiving a telegram from his wife, I alone survived. He's crossing the waters and he starts to write this incredible hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. As he passes the same point where his daughters died, and only weeks previous, he writes these words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say that it is well, it is well with my soul. Where in your life do you need an encounter with God so that you can say, it is well with my soul? No matter what circumstances I face, no matter what comes my way, no matter, no matter when I'm feeling in the valley of despair, I know that if I can encounter God, I'll find myself on the peak where the perspective changes. Let me pray. God, we, we recognize that. So often we forget who you are. So often we forget the greatness of you. So often we forget that you are able to overcome all of our circumstances. God, I pray right now in this room, this congregation, for those who are in the valley of despair, that they might encounter you. God, that you might show up in their world in a real and tangible way in order that they might know you and that everything might change. God, may you be returned in our mind and our heart to the greatness of who you are. And may we be able to say it as well with my soul.